Hey everyone, it's me talking at the start of a podcast, but I'm not apologising for it being late, which is an exciting change. This week, our conversation is about same-sex marriage and the ongoing fun and games within the Church of England. It's a topic we've tackled before, but uh, it's all over the news, so we felt we had to give it another run. We recorded this last week, midway through the Synod of the Church of England. So if there's stuff you think, oh, it's weird they haven't spoken about that, it's probably happened after we recorded this. There's always more nonsense happening. So yeah, we had to have a cutoff somewhere, and it was when we could all record for. So if there's stuff missing, now you know why. Uh, Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast that answers the most pressing question facing us all. What if three people record themselves talking about being leftist Christians in the UK? I'm Ben Molyneux-Heddington and I'm joined by Adam Spears and Luca Von Adas. Nope, I don't know what I said there, but it wasn't your name. (laughs) I mean, it's not your name anyway. Luca Von Adas? Yeah. (laughs) Luca Von Adas. (laughs) If you're wearing particularly tight trousers, we refer to you as Luca Von Adas. Uh, okay, well, we've got Luca I have got, Atos. I have got wet dungarees on, considering I spilled liquid all over me, so maybe that's what's gone on. Uh, um, well, in case people haven't worked out who you are, say hello, Adam. Hello. And say hello, Lou. Hello. How are you both doing? Lou, apparently you're wet, but beyond that... Apart from being slightly damp, I'm mm-hmm. on uh, good form, thank you. Good. Adam? Yes, I'm also good. No, you're not, you uh, liar. I think I'm good. <laughs> I don't, I, do you know what? There's So, like... We didn't release an episode on time last week, and it's entirely my fault that's, that because is, I was that's just. That's not true. <laughs> I, uh, it is almost entirely my fault. Yeah, I would give you maybe eighty-five to ninety percent of the blame. Yeah. Um, well, having uh, deadlines, especially academic deadlines, it's not good for an ADHD mm-hmm. brain. I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Right? It was. It was. It was not a good week. It was not good to witness either. Can yeah, I, I can say. imagine. I. I. I'll, dear if you witnessed it then that meant that lots of other people here did i was chatting to someone um the other day and uh uh, an academic um that sarah knows and they said to me oh you did it you did a master's did you ever consider doing a phd and i just about managed to stop myself laughing in their face (laughs) (laughs) and i was like no because that's one of the worst ideas anyone has ever had (laughs) i just yeah I would just um, be sat there constantly panicking about a deadline for five years or whatever it takes. Is it three or f- yeah. yeah? Well, no, it wouldn't take. Well, th- three, three or four. Yeah. yeah. Like I've often had a lot of people ever since I've been at uni or whatever come up to me and say, "Oh yeah, you know, have you thought about a PhD? You could do a PhD." And like, you know, obviously for a fleeting moment, I uh, I entertained mm. that idea. It was the worst decision of my life. Um, mm-hmm. What what people don't understand is that just because you might know a bit and 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 be slightly verbose, you know, does not mean that you are well suited to like that particular form of academia, that mm. particular form of learning. And also being a um, a fairly competent bullshit artist 
only works for so long, right? Like the ability to just to speak eloquently yeah, yeah, yeah. with limited yeah, information exactly. will eventually get <laughs> found out. <laughs> uh, exactly. A PhD is is that that yeah. point, I think. Like I, I just about managed it for a master's. but And, I, and yeah. I don't feel bad saying that about you because, you know, I'm saying it about myself as much as I am about you. Like I thought doing a PhD involved smoking a lot and looking really cool. I do those things um, anyway, so, you know. Are you talking, are you, I think you're talking about the, a particular group of 1970s French philosophers. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I thought uh, doing a PhD would make me into. Uh-huh. And then right, I started okay. a PhD, and then I realised I was still me, and actually yeah. it wasn't quite working out, so then I left it. There we go. There's my story. Yeah. There's my contribution yeah. to PhD. So we, so we are a, a group of failed... Hey, no, I ben, didn't... I, I, who, who, <laughs> <laughs> who failed so badly you didn't even do one yes. <laughs> um, i feel like we're waffling mostly because none of us want to get on to talking about the main topic of today oh lord deliver we are going to talk a little bit about the current c of e clusterfuck am i allowed to say clusterfuck is that a fair summary of all that's been going on <laughs> Is that what they're calling synonyms? Yeah. yeah, that's that's the, the bishop's general, paper. General, general clusterfuck. Yeah, <laughs> the bishops respond to the general clusterfuck. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that, and we are going to try and limit ourselves. We kind of feel like we have to talk about it and address it, and you know. I think you probably all have a fairly good idea of what our opinions of what has been going on is. So yeah, we're going to get onto that a little bit. Uh, we're going to start with what else is on my mind, grapes. What else is on my mind, grapes? And for me, what has been on my mind, grapes, has uh, been the very heartening number of people uh, on strike. Now, I want to be really careful because I don't want it to be like oh yeah, being on strike, like the most important thing is people being on strike because every time people are on strike, obviously they're losing money and whatever. And ideally what you want is a union at a point where they don't have to go on strike because the bosses give them what they want. But in the climate we're in, a situation where so many people are feeling empowered and willing to strike for their rights, for what they deserve, what they need, uh, is really heartening. And I have seen a number of fellow Christians and obviously people of all other religions out on the picket lines doing the good stuff, mostly just as as people um, with occasional bits of, you know, people in their clericals and dog collars and all that sort of thing, um, which has been really heartening to see alongside just, yeah, the general increase in union militancy, which, yeah, is making me very happy. I mean, I think you've spoken for all of us there, Ben. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with <laughs> yeah. that. Adam, what's your alternative take? Why are unions bad? <laughs> Everyone who's striking is a bastard. <laughs> I just want to scab, 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 scab all day long. Oh. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, obviously we support um, basically every strike that's happening. Being a scab is uh, wrong and bad. And the government, the less said about them, the better. It's not even worth talking about them because they won't even come to the table. And the reason you can tell that it's the fault of uh, the government rather than the unions is because the Scottish and Welsh governments mm. are coming to the table and stopping the strikes. Yeah. Right. Did you say almost every strike because the Home Office border force people are going to go on strike? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm just saying, like, it is conceivable that there might be a strike I might not yes, support. Yes, yes. You but, know, but generally, uh, so I've got to keep. I've got to give myself yeah, that no, wriggle room. You know, I mean, I'd like the border the border force to go on strike yeah, forever. Well, yes, I mean, we just really wanted to get our support on record for that. I think, 
but yeah, really heartening to see. Adam, I believe there have been things on your mind, Grapes. There have. There are two incidents that have happened in the last few weeks that are uh, sort of tangentially related. The first is the CV vicar, Stephen Sizer, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Sizer, who has been barred from practicing ordained ministry uh, for 12 years for uh, anti-Semitism. There were, I think, 11 allegations of anti-Semitic conduct made against him. I'm not sure exactly how many of those were upheld, but clearly enough that he has been barred. Um, and I think the, I don't know if it was the Archbishops or, or just Justin Welby um, released a statement in the last week, which I think handed down the um, the penalty for that. The biggest one was that he linked to an article that suggested that Israel was responsible for 9-11, which is uh, a hell of a take. Then when he was questioned about that on an Australian radio station, he said that it had to be considered, which is a a very odd position to take. I think as you mentioned before we came on here to, to record... Um, he seems to have got steadily worse over the years. Clearly, what he did was anti-Semitic. You mentioned that we were saying he's got steadily worse, and I think I'd actually want to maybe nuance that slightly and say that he's got less subtle, if that if that is, makes sense, yeah. in terms of I think this is always the stuff he's believed, yeah. but he was historically smart enough to... yeah have some level of plausible deniability. Yeah. You know, because when it first popped up, he was posting some stuff that was drawn from a website that also had anti-Semitic material on. And the stuff itself wasn't anti-Semitic. It was anti-Zionist. It was then pointed out to him and he said, oh, my bad, I'll remove it. And I think in retrospect, it's quite likely he knew what was actually going on. And he was just smart enough. And it seems that... For whatever reason, over the years, he's got less and less cautious about that. Um, whether that indicates a sense of boldness about anti-Semitism that I do think we are sadly seeing, or perhaps the fact he's retired now and his wage doesn't rely on him not getting in too much hot water, uh, I don't know. But um, he has always been deeply uh, anti-Zionist, but in a way, there are good ways and bad ways of opposing the state of Israel and its behaviour. And uh, I think he firmly fell into the bad ways of doing that, both in terms of the anti-Semitism, even prior to that, you know, his big thing was basically that he didn't like Christian Zionism. And it was all about essentially being too nice to Jewish people as Christians. I, I think he was probably always quite bad. And I think there are potentially some quite serious questions to be asked about why he was allowed to become a priest in the first place and how he managed to stay a priest for so long, whilst also wanted to be very careful about setting any sort of precedent around opposition to Israel being a reason to boot someone out. I was just going to say that I think there's a lot of nuances which are really important in understanding what's going on in the state of Israel and the differences between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And I don't think that we have a very good or very thorough way of understanding the complexities of it. At the college that Adam and I are at, we do a module called Jewish Christian Relations. And I think that can be really helpful 
in actually understanding the nuances surrounding this and exposing people like the person just mentioned for what is very much anti-Semitism, but also understanding that you can take a view of liberation towards the people of Palestine without being anti-Semitic. And I feel like we're having those conversations all the time, but people still aren't understanding it. And perhaps we need to be better and talking from a place of privilege as a Christian, we need to be better at listening to those Jewish voices that are for the liberation of and freedom of Palestine and can talk about Israel and their Jewishness in a very nuanced and powerful and important way. Yeah, absolutely. So the other story, which, as I said, is tangentially related, is that the Labour MP Kim Johnson was forced to apologise by uh, Keir Starmer for calling the Israeli government fascist. And it's it was a really incredible apology, a really fascinating use of language, because she she said that she was quoting various human rights organizations, including Amnesty International, by calling them fascist and um, saying that it was an apartheid state and all the rest of it, uh, which I think I think we can all agree is just a fact. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was made to apologize. And I think what's really fascinating about this is that it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what fascism is which is which is fundamentally uh, in and of itself very dangerous she was made to apologize for calling it fascist because that was seen as anti-semitic now obviously if she had said it was a nazi government that would be a problem but fascism is a much broader thing and fascism's have existed in many parts of the world, uh, in Japan, in Spain, in Italy. Nazism is a particular form of fascism, but it is not the only form of fascism. Uh, and fascism indeed exists in Israel as well. But she was made to apologise for this, which, well, it just shows you how far Keir Starmer has, has taken the Labour Party, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but... Um, <laughs> I, I I don't think I can bring myself to vote for them at the next election, not just for this, but for 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 many reasons. Yeah, she should never have apologised, but I can sort of see why she did. I didn't know about that, um, so my initial reaction is just a bit ragey at uh, Keir Starmer, which I think, yeah, to be fair, very much welcome in this podcast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of our. Um, responses to Keir Starmer sort of 90% of the time are just rage. Yes. Again, I was, I mean, I've just been literally saying about nuance and I felt like when I was talking about Israel-Palestine, I was just saying the word nuance. And like, why can't we understand that when it comes to fascism, that fascism takes many forms? And it's true that the Nazis were fascists, like Adam said, but it's also true that other people are fascists. It just feels a bit ridiculous to me I don't know maybe it's part of our kind of what's going on I feel like in the media and society at the moment that everything is clickbait and everything is reactive and everything is responsive so there's no proper actual dialogue because what would have been more helpful is for that MP to explain actually what does she mean by fascism and her understanding of fascism and the the role of the Labour Party in challenging fascism in all its forms
Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group, Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions, or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook, or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. Yeah, but they would never they would never let that you know, they'd never let that go. I don't think it would matter um how good a speech and how convincing she was. Clearly, since Corbyn, you know, a- any hint of anything to do with Israel is going to be jumped on and 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 accused of being anti-Semitic. A spokesman for Keir Starmer said that Labour had strong relations with the government of Israel. Obviously, there are always issues in any bilateral relationship where you have disagreements between countries. But fundamentally, the relationship between Britain and Israel is one that we value. And I mean, it's just making it very clear exactly where Keir Starmer stands on this. Um, And unfortunately, in this case, uh, as with in so many cases, it's uh, not on the side of those who are actually being oppressed or actually feeling the, the brunt of the... Um, Israeli state. Recently, we have had a bit of an issue of making depressing episodes. So I, I'm going to try and add a little bit of... Uh, light and shade and so so having had that depressing bit lou can you can you give us some light with everyone's favorite segment and jingle saint of the week saint of the week hooray <laughs> i'm really glad that you use the word light because this saint is the saint of 
Candle, well, she's not the saint of Candlemas. Um, her saint's day is the same time as Candlemas. I'm going to make you do the the idiot's guide. What's Candlemas? I had to have this explained to me the other day. The presentation of Christ in the temple. So when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple and they met... To see all the candles. To see all the candles. There was a candle display going on. There was like a, a wax modelling show or something. But people used to go and get their <laughs> candles blessed, right, on this day. This is the... This is why it's called Candlemas, right? I think so, yeah. Something like that. Anyway, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple and there they met Anna and Simeon. And in the Church of England, uh, we celebrate Candlemas to remember that. And it's sort of an interesting time of the year when spring is coming, the seasons are turning, we're no longer officially in winter, the evenings are getting lighter and we are heading towards, I guess, the desert of Lent so it's a really interesting liminal time. But at the same time, first uh, of February, uh, we celebrate St. Bridget, and she is one of the patron saints of Ireland. She's best known for her charity, her miracles, and lavish hospitality. One of the symbols of St. Bridget is a perpetual fire. Tradition has it that St. Mel, Bishop of Ardar, Arda, I think, ordained her a bishop, which is very cool, considering that it took till 2000 and 12 until women could be ordained bishops in the CV. But actually, in the 1100s, St. Bridget was a bishop. When questioned, Mel responded that she alone of the abbesses of Kildare would be a bishop, but her successors would continue to have a bishop's jurisdictional authority, and indeed they did. Bridget's double monastery at Kildare was built at a location sacred to the goddess Bridget. So there's some really interesting pagan Christian stuff going on there. Its perpetual fire kept burning in Bridget's memory, was initially extinguished in 1540 with the monastery's dissolution. Boo hiss, boo hiss, but also <laughs> nuance. Um, <laughs> nuance is such a less interesting thing to shout, I'm afraid. <laughs> also nuance. It's not going to catch on like pantomimes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to catch on. Uh, however, the Abbey at Kildare, um, which had men and women in it, it was, I think, the first... Abbey that had uh, both nuns and monks. But anyway, the light is still lit, if that makes sense. They still have a, a fire burning for St. Bridget there now. So at some point they relit it again, but I don't know that. Anyway, a younger nun named Dar Lida served as Bridget's ambassador and her Anankara or soul friend. The two women were so close that they slept in the same bed. Oh, oh, right. So they were, they, they were just were very yeah. good yeah, friends. Yeah. We know that story, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Covenanted friendships is the C of E. Covenanted friendships. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> like many Celtic saints, Bridget believed that each person needs a soul friend to discover together that God speaks most powerfully in the seemingly mundane details of shared daily life. And when Bridget talked about her own death, Dalida begged that they might die together. Bridget responded that she would outlive her by one year and succeed her as abbess. After this, they would be united in heaven. Bridget died in February, the year 525, the date of Imbolic, the annual festival of the goddess Bridget. So very, you know, like she was clearly very holy because she managed to get all the dates right. Since Dalida died exactly one year later, they share the same feast. And it's amazing that she did also die one year later. Which is totally true. 
Which is totally true, Adam. This is the power of lesbians, don't yeah, you yeah, realise? Yeah, we've established this previously on Satan of the Week <laughs> that as far as we're concerned, this is all true and we don't care to find out if it's not. Okay. Yeah, it's all true. I'm just enjoying this, like, lesbian powers thing. It's it's mm-hmm. like vegan powers out of Scott Pilgrim, right? <laughs> it's special lesbian powers, Adam. What would you know? <laughs> um but the companionship and passion between Bridget and Darlida resonate powerfully with the love and companionship shared between LGBTQ couples and non-traditional relationships today. Each partnership, like theirs, is a symbol of God's eternal hospitality, extending the warmth and light of the perpetual fire of self-giving love. Amen. Is is this official from the Vatican? It's not official from the Vatican. <laughs> it's officially from the Methodist Church. So thank you. Oh, okay. Methodist yeah, Church, but they are—they are Vatican-approved saints, are they? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, she's one of the patron saints of Ireland, so yeah. And I, and Dalladur is also a saint. So, so to clarify, the Church of England is tearing it, tearing itself to bits about like bishops that don't affirm women and saints that's married, and the Catholics are like, yeah, for like a thousand years we've we've had a lesbian bi- bishop. What's the deal? Like, a gay woman <laughs> yeah, bishop. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, what, what's the problem, everyone? Like, yeah. Exactly. And so it says here, when I was talking about St. Mel ordaining her a bishop, well, it must have been in the 500s since she died in 525. Yeah. So, like, we've just gone back in time. Like, we've just been shit, really, in terms of progress, haven't we? Also, though, 525, that means there's a big anniversary for her coming up in the next few years. <gasps> we should have a big lesbian nun fest and ordain loads of lesbian nuns as bishops. I thought that was going to be like a, a, a bread and rosary special. It should be a bread and rosary special. First of all, lesbian nun fest is my favourite website, but I don't think we should be endorsing it. <laughs> Don't you make me wee? <laughs> That's not. Yeah, you didn't drop. Uh, you didn't drop your drink in your you lap earlier, out. did you? You just pissed yourself. <laughs> yeah, no, no, just pissed myself. Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> That's wonderful, though. I yeah, I, I knew nothing about that, and that's great. That yeah. Uh, so in the in the five hundreds, you had a a woman bishop, b someone who was pretty clearly in a relationship with another nun. Um, and see that she was basically wandering around being like, I'm going to tell you exactly what happens in the future. And everyone was like, yeah, cool, lesbian bishop, we can see the future, no worries, crack on. But now the church is like, we're having none of that. Adam, that was yeah, that, I know, that right? was a worryingly professional segue into the next section there. <laughs> okay, I thought I was going to get it in the neck for my terrible uh, my terrible pun, but I'm, I'm glad that no, you no. Uh, saw it as a, a, a segue. That's, it almost sounds like we know what we're doing when you do stuff like that, though, so I don't know. I'll start doing uh, dodgy puns all the more. Oh, then. please do. Please feel free. It's got to enliven up the podcast somehow, right? <laughs> oh, God. Who who is feeling mentally strong enough to give us a quick recap of what's been going on in the Church of England about same-sex marriage uh, in the last like month because we've avoided it till now? Oh, my gosh. Okay. This my thing. This my jam. Really? You should, you should get a better hobby, mate. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> 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 Something more life giving, perhaps. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit um, today in chapel. Uh, you know, we tra- train ecumenically, but today in chapel we had a, a very Anglican service. We did. I'd say probably quite a Catholic Anglican service. It was pretty Catholic, yeah. And uh, my Methodist dear friend who was sitting behind me, I turned around to her and just went quite quietly, This is the shit. 
And uh, she really got the giggles at that because I was like, this is going to be the business. Um, anyway, I really loved it. Oh, God. You, you really set yourself up now for that. <laughs> yeah, this is the business. Anyway, it was the business. Um, same-sex marriage. So whilst we are recording, General Synod is currently meeting. Um, it's quite a fraught. I mean, General Synod is always really fraught, right? Nobody, I don't think, is ever that nice to each other. However, it feels particularly fraught at the moment because the bishops have concluded their discerning and deciding elements of the LLF process. LLF process started in 2017 and it was a way that the bishops felt the church could talk together about relationships, identity, marriage and sexuality. So it was never just about LGBTQ issues but generally how we how we talk about and how we understand but, these but it but it was but it was yeah it was yeah it was and anyway the process happened uh and the bishops met for three residentials in the autumn and in january and came up with a new set of proposals what's really interesting about their proposals is that it's, it's a pastoral as opposed to a legislative change which means that they don't need synod's approval or assent and the main things that they are going to do is to allow blessings for same-sex couples but not marriage because there wasn't significant consensus within the house of bishops to put forward a motion that would change what they describe as the doctrine of marriage and there's going to be new pastoral guidance written hopefully in time for publication of the july synod to be discussed it was an apology for LGBTQ people, which kind of rang a bit hollow. Let's be honest. It did ring a bit hollow. I've got yeah. I think I think you've used the right words there, though. It's an apology for them, yeah, not to them. Yeah, exactly. For for them. For them. But I'm sorry that you guys exist. It's actually really annoying. I'm sorry that you're still causing us problems. It's kind of an apology in the traditional sense, right? In the sense that we do apologetics. Yeah. You know, it's not that we're actually apologising for something. You know. That, that that's been done wrong it's that we're sort of laying out a case yes i think you just have to read it sarcastically like, i'm sorry <laughs> it would it would feel a little bit more honest then wouldn't it yeah wouldn't it just yeah so anyway that's basically what it is am i right in thinking that the blessings don't actually bless the union they bless the individuals, though. I think I read that somewhere. I think that the whole thing that they created was prayers of love and faith, which um, admittedly they've said is very much in draft form and they need to do a lot more work on it, but they wanted to bring something to Synod. And there is a blessing of rings and there is a blessing of the couple and their relationship. Okay, it's, it's a start. It's a start considering that before this, we've not been allowed to do this. Well, except, I mean, people have been doing it for quite a long time. <laughs> well, it's the same with like same-sex relationships amongst clergy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like you, yeah. you now you can get married in a uh, in a registry office or like just not in a Church of England church. And now you're allowed to do it. But whereas before uh, you weren't allowed to do it. But like, you know, you mean you mean people getting married? Yeah, sure. Sure. People getting married, whether it's civil marriage or uh, holy matrimony, are allowed to shag, according to the Church of England. Now, yeah. Now, yeah. They didn't always, because the Church of England has for a long time thought that marriage was exclusively belonged to them. But I think there's some understanding now that actually civil marriage is, is a marriage, funnily enough. 
But there was also always this problem as well as actually they got themselves in this semantic knot where they were like, well, you're not allowed to have sex outside of marriage. What sex? It's when a penis penetrates a vagina. Ah. Yes, I know. Well, if you're missing one of those things, you're kind of free to do as you like. Ah. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, they've already tied themselves in all these semantic knots where what they were officially saying, if you read into it or looked into it, you kind of could get away with a lot more stuff than they really want you to realise. Yeah, yeah. Penis in vagina, not okay. Bumming, perfectly fine. <laughs> I, I just don't know what you want me to say to that. I don't know how to reply yeah, that. Yeah, I have no response. Bumming, perfectly fine. I just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't have a response either. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I just, I put it out there, you know, if you want to reject it, it's it's fine. It'll break my heart. I don't but... want to reject bumming for the people that enjoy a good bum. Yeah. I just <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, that that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. All people enjoy a bad bum, you know? Let's not you know, sex isn't always great. That's not... Oh <laughs> I don't want to think about bad bums. <laughs> it's not the so we're not we're not we're not we're well, we're not kink shaming. No, here, we're not, we? but I still don't want to think about bad bums. I was just thinking more some of us are not very talented sexually, you know? Like <laughs> <laughs> Oh right! <laughs> you know, don't let's not set the boundaries too high here. You don't like. want to know what I was thinking. Ben's a bad bummer. <laughs> I'm looking forward to working out how much of this to cut. <laughs> Probably all of it is is safe. No, I think you need to keep Ben's a bad bummer in. How are we feeling now about about the decision? I mean, I kind of saw it coming. I have to say, I did do a little bit of a fist pump when I saw the news break of what the bishops had decided. Not out of joy at all, but because it was a pastoral and not a legislative change. And I was saying months ago, I called it and I was like, it's going to be pastoral, not legislative. And I was like, whoa, whoa, nerded out. I win, I win. And then I sort of looked around and realised I hadn't actually won anything. And that was like the ultimate nerd moment. <laughs> you won in your own mind and, and that's what matters. I won in my own mind of, of to do with church governance. I mean, that's really sad. That is, I mean, that is very niche nerd. <laughs> it's very niche nerd. And I had no one to say that I won. With. But on this podcast, we're prepared to say, Lou, you won. You won. Thank you. <laughs> well done. We'll put we'll put in some cheering. And no one has recorded, obviously, months ago that I said that. <laughs> Woo! I guess it's worth saying that the reason that that's happened is because the sense is that if it was a something that would have to go through Synod, yeah. it probably wouldn't pass. Whereas the bishops can kind of unilaterally put this stuff through. Exactly. And that's mainly to do with the fact that uh, the House of Laity have got a more conservative makeup in this quinquennium. And also, if they push, try to push through some sort of legislative change, let's say, for example, to do with marriage, which would require a canon to be changed, if it, the proposal got voted down, they wouldn't be able to bring it until the next quinquennium of Synod which is another four years away, so things could get really stalled. No, I'm sorry. How can a quinquennium be four years, not five years? 
That's insane. Because they've already had a year. Right, okay, sorry. I thought you meant just that it was the cycle. And I was like, they can't call it a quinquennium <laughs> and make it five, uh, not five years. That's no, quite... Ben, it's not I'm... just a C of E quirk. It's because they've already had one year, you dig that. I just, all, all, all I'm going to say is I, I'm enjoying the incredulity coming from both parties here. <laughs> Um, I did enjoy the word quinquennium, though. That's a good word. It's a good word. We should use quinquennium more often. I don't know what else we can use it for. It sounds like an um, insult to me. Are oh, you quinquennium? It does. You, you massive quinquennium. <laughs> but basically, I think more than anything else, I am disappointed that the bishops did not have more courage. I am bis- disappointed that it feels like they are giving airtime to those with very conservative views who are basically just homophobic. It's not about protecting anyone or anything. They're just homophobes. Like, you yeah, know, 100%. I'm frustrated that the theological positions that we take are still not being seen as equal or as valid as those who take a conservative viewpoint. I'm angry that the words traditional and orthodox are being misused consistently. I'm angry that some bishops wrote... 14 bishops signed a letter that talked about the scriptural understanding of marriage, which basically went through salvation. And it was just bad theology more than anything else. Yeah, Jesus. I read that and I was like, you people are bishops. Like if I was... Yeah. If I put that shit in at undergraduate theology level, I would get annihilated. Well, maybe not at the London School of Theology, but at a real university that wasn't just concerned with evangelical nonsense. (laughs) The crux of it really is... Why this focus on marriage? All the time, it always seems to be the epitome is for marriage. And growing up under Section 28 and then the legacy of Section 28, I never even thought that marriage would be possible or marriage would be an option. Um, It just didn't enter, didn't even enter my mind while I was sort of coming to terms with my sexuality. But I... As I got older and those options, you know, civil partnerships started becoming available and marriages started becoming available and you saw more of it on the news and the media, it always just felt like a choice that some people did, but actually you didn't you didn't need to. And I think perhaps this focus on marriage from those in the LGBT community, like I understand it and I don't want to critique their call for it. But also at the same time, the construct of marriage that we have in this country is so rooted in patriarchal practice and ownership and all of those sort of things. I just don't feel like I can agree with it, really. And I don't think it's the epitome of queer freedom or queer liberation or necessarily what God calls us to, perhaps. I think it's a choice that anyone can make freely should they want to but there's much there's much more to relationships and flourishing and life together than that and i certainly don't think as some bishops have argued that it's key to salvation so i guess that's kind of where i stand and i mean i had a my partner and i had a civil partnership um mainly because that's what we were able to do in the church of england and actually it was the best choice for us yeah. because we meant that we had the legal protections that we needed, but we could make it our own and we weren't bound by all of the patriarchal, inherently misogynistic rubbish guff that often comes with marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think this really gets to something that we were talking about um, in the purity culture episode that we did um, a while back. Yeah. 
where and i think sarah was talking about there's an element of the whole kind of same-sex marriage in the church thing being people wanting to affirm queer relationships as long as they fit uh, actually a fairly conservative mold yeah um you know this is what marriage is we're just going to slightly move the boundaries of that um outside what we have up to now thought it is so that you can also participate in this patriarchal uh construct that w- that we've got um but don't actually think about how you might push the envelope further than that mm. It is the most conservative demand of queer liberation as it relates to society and the church. I think same-sex marriage is really is getting the show on the road, right? That's step one. That's not the ultimate conclusion of yeah. queer liberation. It's, it's important quickly to say that as well, because what we're, what we're not saying in all of this actually is that um, therefore we don't want it to happen. Right, it yeah. is, as you say, to say that this is this is the start, this is not the end. We absolutely do want it to happen, but I think it's just understanding that it's not the be-all and end-all. And there's something about valuing and upholding faithful, committed relationships that are not just formed on the basis of a very particular construct or understanding of what marriage is. And the whole argument's about biblical marriage. Well, I don't see a, a good marriage pretty much anywhere in the bible really i was thinking the other day about sarah and i are married sorry we we did accept the patriarchal expectations everyone (laughs) monsters but it's interesting to reflect back on right because we were when we met we were both uh, to varying degrees on our way out of uh kind of conservative evangelical culture in our heads we were like purity culture expectations of marriage from evangelicalism we've thrown all that off you know we've given it all up and yet I look back and I think if we had been the same people but had never had the expectations and understanding of marriages that we'd been brought up with we definitely wouldn't have got married as soon as we did mm-hmm. like no question even though we thought we were kind of you know past that or beyond that like actually those ideas of marriage were so deeply ingrained in the way we saw our relationship and saw each other when I look at some of the demands for gay marriage, I think we live in a culture, both generally and specifically the Christian culture, that is so big on marriage. And, you know, I know particularly in my past in evangelicalism, it isn't just the teaching, it is the way that married couples are the lifeblood of the church and everything flows through them. Mm-hmm. And I think from what I know of even more middle-of-the-road and liberal churches that that is still the case a lot of the time and i think what we're seeing is that because marriage is the be all and end all and again i'm sure we talked about this on the purity culture episode marriage is such a be all and end all that of course same sex marriage becomes the most important thing because getting married is so central to the identity of being a christian that to not have that option available basically stops you fully living your life in a in a Christian way, right? Yeah. And I think actually, whilst I don't want to prevent people who want access to that to have access for that, perhaps what we really need to be doing is taking a sledgehammer to the concept of marriage and certainly its centrality in people's lives and Christian life particularly, because actually that is a much more important aspect of queer liberation is the many many different ways in which companionship and 
joy and love can be found and expressed through relationships with other people that don't always conform to marriages, even if that marriage is extended slightly to include same-sex couples. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think in some ways this is just the way society is going anyway do you know the um youtube channel wisecrack no it's it's like a philosophy kind of culture kind of channel it's quite interesting they um did an episode where they talked about cheating and and got into some of the the questions around that and like why why is cheating seen as so awful and and then talking about sort of open relationships and that kind of thing and it's fascinating because across different cultures you know different i guess western cultures um were ones they they looked at it showed what percentage of people had cheated or or would cheat and what percentage of people thought that it was a, a moral like ill to do so one of the things i think i think it was a fairly constant thing that like 25% of people yeah. um would cheat which was higher than i expected that's a lot higher than i would have thought right no it is but i've seen this before yeah it's mad but it's really fascinating right yeah, because yeah. only the dirtiest most disgusting people cheat right like that is culturally that's what we think but you're absolutely right like people cheat all the fucking time and it's not good but it is really common apparently so but actually, yeah, it's 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 massive. But the really fascinating thing about it is that, like, it was something in like the high seventies or or eighties or something um, of people in this country or, or America, I forget which one, saying that it was morally wrong to cheat. Mm-hmm. But then when you when you go to France, it's forty seven percent, which is a huge difference, right? But I think that's you know, and, and I think there's you know. There are people that are emotionally abusive, and part of that can be infidelity. Um, and there are people who get drunk and have a one-night stand with someone when they're already in a relationship, right? And I'm not going to say that that's a, a good thing or doesn't suggest there were cracks potentially in the relationship or anything like that. But we talk about those two things sometimes as though they were the same. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's also an acknowledgement that, like... So for me, the idea of, like polyamory or you know even slightly more porous edges of the relationship open relationship whatever you want to call it that i just have no that doesn't appeal to me at all but i think that there are people for whom relationships as they are set out as the norm don't really work and that can be anything from you know couples where actually they're better served having open relationships to even couples where they the assumption sometimes is that 90% of your emotional needs are met by your partner right and I think particularly in classic heterosexual marriages as a man the only emotion you're ever allowed to show is with is with your wife right like well unless unless it's unless it's anger with other people yeah right yeah or or you can let a solitary tear down your face at the funeral of your father or the queen yeah well yeah <laughs> right but do you know like actually even that is is simply not a sustainable or you know even if you are still 100 percent monogamous within that relationship actually for some people finding supportive emotional relationships with people of whatever gender outside of that is already a rupturing of what a proper marriage should look like so i think there's such a narrow understanding of marriage and actually when you put all that pressure on a marriage what happens well things crack and sometimes that means people cheat Mm -hmm. yeah
Yeah, I wanted to talk about though um, these these blessings that they're going to be offering in the C of E because there's been an interesting split at the top of the church because uh, the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, said that he will be offering um, blessings to same-sex couples and apparently strongly suggested that he did not believe that gay sex was sinful. That seems to stand with, with Stephen Cottrell's general demeanour. But Justin Welby said that uh, in a, quote, self-denying ordinance, uh, he would not be offering these blessings um, for the sake of unity in the global Anglican church, which sounds an awful lot like it's uh, very convenient for him. Now, I wouldn't like to say, you know, I wouldn't like to assume what Justin Welby thinks inside uh, his own head, but his track record on this is not great as far as we're concerned. Um, He has in the past been fairly clear on what his position is, that he upholds the quote-unquote traditional view of marriage. Um, And I don't see any suggestions that that's changed. But what is interesting about it is that he apparently said that he would rather the Church of England was disestablished um, over this issue than to offer same-sex marriages. um, And I think this was in the context of him potentially offering blessings as well, because, of course, um, a lot of MPs sort of weighed in on this and talked about potentially taking power away from the C of E again and sort of imposing equal marriage on the church before it decided to do it itself. And I, I've got to say, I I didn't see uh, homophobia being the driving force behind yeah. disestablishment. You know? <laughs> like, I've prayed for disestablishment for a long time. I didn't realise I just needed to be more homophobic. <laughs> Justin, you tease. Don't, don't, don't try and distract me from the issue of the day by showing me a saucy little a bit of disestablishment. Like... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> saucy bit of disestablishment i'm gonna start using that now. yeah yeah flashing a bit of disestablishment just a saucy little bit of disestablishment yeah. flashing the ankle of disestablishment that's exactly the image i had in my head as well like. Ooh-hoo. oh my goodness i don't know what to say so i think that the blessings are a really good step however i do think when you start blessing things it becomes a bit slippery in the sense that if you are blessing people who have had a civil marriage and blessing their relationship, you've not done the legal bit of marriage, but are you not blessing their marriage and therefore it's marriage? So I think that seems a little bit confusing, Um, but maybe it's because the bishops weren't yet ready to make some sort of doctrinal change to do with the canons so we'll have to wait and see. When it comes to the prayers, well, there are a lot of really, really good prayers and really good resources out there. Prayers about blessing rings, blessing relationships, talking about relationships. Like there's so there's such a wealth of liturgy that I don't understand why the Church of England is trying to create a new resource that feels a bit rushed and doesn't feel 
that eloquent yet when there is a lot of really amazing liturgy out there already. So having said that, uh, whilst we support same-sex marriage and would love dearly to see it properly instituted in the Church of England, it is only the tip of the iceberg and the most conservative demand. To me, that then asks the most obvious question, well, what are the other demands? Um, And I'm thinking particularly as it relates to, to the church, what do we think the stuff that actually we should be fighting for alongside and beyond same-sex marriage is in terms of queer liberation? I think we need to have a theology of good sex. I think that we are not able to talk about sex and sexuality in a way that is life-giving and flourishing and still calls out the things which are not good sex, but we need to be better at talking about what good sex is. Like we need to have those discussions about sex before we can properly start thinking about the more abstract stuff before we can properly start thinking about you know all the other stuff that that comes with you know a relationship and and what those relationships might look like for example i mean you know there are plenty of people who are asexual mm-hmm. right who are queer people as well but actually it's almost like they can't even begin talking about this that the stuff that affects them properly because everyone's still so hung up on sex yeah right and until we have that proper conversation and talk about what good sex looks like and and it's a you know a word that you like to use a lot as well you know good kind of embodied Mm. kind of sex you know until we think about that we can't think about what embodiment looks like for those who perhaps aren't even that interested in sex And the problem is when we aren't able to actually talk about and have a really good embodied theology of good sex, so many things do so much damage, including secrecy and shame and things being hidden and Mm -hmm. uh, not bringing things into the light so they fester in the darkness. Earlier this evening, I was looking just on the news and on the BBC News, the top eight most read articles were to do with violence or murder against women that was all in the news today. And I was like, and this is why, because we, part of the reason is we don't just have a a bad theology of sex or how we understand it, but also our understanding of ourselves in relationship to God, others, to our sense of self and to the rest of creation is broken. And we are all damaged by that. Yeah. You know, when I'm doing sex education work, which I have done a lot of in the past, uh, I don't, I don't do as much of now, but I do a little bit of still. Um, your job is not to go, this is the right and the wrong way to have sex. This is the good and the bad. The, the point is to go, what do you think about stuff? Where are you coming from? What's your views? Yes, you want to introduce accurate information and you want to challenge and push back on stuff. But the point is to help them develop a sexual ethic and a sexual understanding, not to give them a sexual ethic. And actually, I don't think that's just a problem within Christian youth work. I think that's a problem within uh, my experience of British church in general. You know, I I used to preach sometimes, and I just, if people ask me to now, which they don't for obvious reasons, (laughs) um, but even if they did, I I would just say no, because I just really don't see the value in it. Because why? Why the fuck would I stand up up there 
and and tell you all what to think. And like, I don't want to be like, you know, there are people who are doing interesting and you know, challenging stuff and preaching or whatever. I don't want to be too much of a a wanker about this. Um, just a little bit of a wanker, not a not a big one. Um, oh, sun sunlight, you Ben. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like I I just think actually we've got this idea that. Um, you know, yeah, we need to have a better understanding of sex, but there were people hearing that and being like, yes, the bishops need to produce a document that helps us then give to the clergy to teach the plebs how they should think about sex. Mm. And I just think that that is so wrong. Uh, and it's really wrong when you consider that actually there are whole queer cultures that all bishops and most clergy have very little concept of you know they might they might well be part of queer communities but they there were cultural things that they are simply not part of and they don't know that are actually in some ways if not always life-giving and important and worthy of theological reflection and if you do top-down theology about sex and bodies and relationships you are going to miss a bunch of really important stuff mm. where base case scenario you end up teaching stuff to people that they can just disregard because it's irrelevant and doesn't take account of their real lives or worst case scenarios actively unhelpful even if it's intended to be life-giving and helpful and so i just think i totally agree we need to come up with these new understandings of sex and relationships and gender and all this stuff but if it's top down it's going to end up being more conservative and less real and less material and less accurate and basically useless at best so i think we need to start by having an understanding that you know actually good theology doesn't come from the bishops it comes from the floor right and and that's you know that's exactly where things like critical pedagogy and uh, liberation theology sort of as a, a an outgrowing of that in a sense can be helpful you know these are models that we we know work we know actually help to foster critical consciousness in people and in young people and uh, you know you you can see the results of not doing things that way uh, and and the results are so poisonous that the number of people you know there's particular churches I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular actually um, but there's particular churches that I have seen so many young people like really young people basically feel pressured into marrying their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever and yeah like so often those marriages within a couple of years are completely broken down and people are damaged and hurting and it's just an utter mess but actually yeah if you if you approached it from a kind of liberation theology a kind of critical pedagogy way of doing things so much of that could be avoided and and there could be so much more healthy uh relationships um amongst young people in in well just in general but but in churches you know we, we often talk about you know individualism being a bad thing but actually people are individuals who need to be encouraged to work this stuff out for themselves with accurate information and until we do that we're just going to see more and more damage i feel like that's a good place to end it i think that wraps us up for the episode this is uh, a sequel to the very first episode Lou was on, yep. where we also banged on about the Church of England same-sex marriage and queer inclusion. 
It's my thing. I'm so glad you clarified that at the start. Well, you know, I want to see how far people get before they realise that it was the same thing again. <laughs> it's not quite the same thing again, but what I'm saying to you is that uh, we will not be doing a trilogy. What? Yeah, we will We will do a celebration episode uh, when we finally get a uh, full same-sex marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, we are, we are not a podcast that's just about sex. Adam was very clear that he would not <laughs> let me do that. I mean, you can do your own podcast. Oh, no, that sounds... Just me monologuing about sex. Yeah, no, we, w- we won't be doing a trilogy. Uh, we might do a celebration episode when the Church of England finally puts full same-sex marriage into place. It's been 84 years. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fine. The planet will be on fire by then anyway, so <laughs> other concerns. It has been a, kind of a bit of a repeat. Um, hopefully it's not been too samey, but I think we felt we really couldn't, with with all the news about it, we couldn't not talk about it at a bit of length hopefully we've got it out of our systems now and we can talk about uh, other depressing things but uh, different depressing things <laughs> thank you very much for joining us everyone you can find us in all your usual podcast feedy places uh, we are at facebook.com slash bread and rosaries we're on twitter at bread underscore rosaries and you can email us at bread and rosaries at gmail.com please do get in touch because it's lovely to hear from you we love feedback thoughts pushback all that sort of stuff uh we have also had someone in contact who was hoping to start trying to make contact with some of the lovely christian comrades in the uk so if you are somewhere within uh the british isles and uh you are a leftist and a christian of some description then uh do get in touch with us because there's a little bit of hope that some sort of conversation or small community or something can be pulled together um so yeah do get in contact with us if that sounds like anything you might be interested in at all adam where in the world can people find you you can find me most places at commie xian wonderful lou as established you are a sentient ai so you can't be found anywhere no i cannot be found anywhere just on a vr headset possibly maybe Do rate and review us. Um, I did promise to look up some reviews, but I forgot to this time. But uh, probably next time I will. Um, and uh, we have a Patreon. Link will be in the description if you want to thirst some pennies for hosting fees. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you next time. See you later. Bye.